Welcome to Alert and Oriented, conversations about God between friends. Join Gary Barkalow and Sam Williamson as we talk about real life with the real God, really. We want to continue on today with our series on counterfeit answers, the idea that the world continues to provide us answers to the issues in life. We all have issues in life, but the world's answers and God's answers are not the same, and the world's answers are always counterfeit God's answers. God's answers are right, but the world's answers look right. They feel right. They appeal to us in this cultural moment. That's why we're calling them counterfeit answers. In today's topic, we want to talk about improving God. Now, we're not really saying that we can improve God, but what we're saying is a lot of the counterfeit answers we see and hear today almost act as a soft apologetic to God. They want to ignore some of the rougher elements of God. They want to ignore the elements of God that don't appeal to today's culture. But the problem with this is in our attempt to make the gospel acceptable, we actually water it down. We fake it. We're giving a counterfeit answer to the gospel. So one of the things I hear all the time, I just am amazed at how how often I hear this. I hear people say, I like to think of God as, you know, Mm -hmm. and then they can say, I like to think of God as just loving, but he's not judgmental. I love to think of God as just my daddy. You know, I like to think of God this way. Now, the problem with this is just think about it. If my daughter said to Gary, if my daughter said to Gary, you know, Gary, I like to think of my dad as a six foot nine center for the New York Knicks. <laughs> Gary would laugh and say, well, that's great, but you're not talking about your dad. You know, it's really nice that you want to think about that, but that's not your real dad. Yeah. And sometimes in our counterfeit answers, our, our uh, attempts to improve God, we're actually leading people to miss who the real God is. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good, Sam. I I, uh, you know, through the years of talking to people and, and probably more in the last six months or so, um, as I talk to people and they, they eventually, I see they're struggling with something about God, their walk with God, understanding him, therefore understanding their own life, their walk, their callings and so on. Um, it usually gets down to some issue about God or about what he says about people that they have a hard time with. And it's, it's kind of as if they're saying, look, the God that we read about in the Bible, he's kind of out of touch. He's kind of old fashioned now. He was good for back then, but now we need to update him a little bit, right? Because our, our, right now our culture so values inclusion, right? We include everybody. It's so much about personal happiness. It's so much about self-importance. And and because of that, we just go, God has to be about that as well. I mean, we have progressed to a deeper understanding of what's important about life and us, and therefore we have to get God to get up to speed on this. And then they start doing these things. And, And really what they have to do is they have to extract, as you were saying, certain things out of scripture about who God is. And of course, as soon as you do that, we have a whole different person that that he is. It's it's kind of as if, it's kind of like in that movie, The Kid, how the main character was an image consultant. <laughs> it's kind of like we play God's image. The culture does God's image consultant, and we're not to do that. We're simply to be his image bearers. Gary, I love that. We are God's image consultants. I mean, isn't that what the disciples were doing? Remember, yeah. they have this. Jesus has this great success. I think it was in Capernaum. I can't remember which city. Everybody wants to come out. Jesus is 
off praying. And his disciples come to him and say, everybody's waiting to hear what you have to say. And Jesus says, we got to go into the next city. And you know, his disciples are thinking, Jesus, you're missing such a great opportunity. You know, it's like they know better than God what we need in the moment. You know, I think if we just step back from our cultural moment or from any cultural moment, we recognize that every culture has failures. Every culture has problems, right? You know, a hundred years ago was not the nirvana that maybe our grandparents said it was. It, it, it had its problems. And if God is real, he really has to address some things in each culture. So if you talk to Middle Eastern cultures and you say to them, you know, the scripture says you can't have sex out of marriage. They say, absolutely not. I agree with that. That's the way it should be. Right. But you also talk to them and say, and it says you should forgive your enemies. And they say, heck no. What are you talking about? But if you say to our society, you should love and forgive your enemies. Everybody says, oh, yes, of course. And we say, and you can't have sex out of marriage. You're saying, how oppressive. What tyranny. You know, I mean, God's word, the same word is in a certain sense, challenging two different cultures in the same day and age. God's word is nothing if it doesn't challenge our culture today. Right. You know, and Sam, you had you had forwarded to me uh, a Tim Keller sermon from a long time ago, and, and he talked about this, and it, it, it was uh, very clarifying for me. And I remember him saying that just what you said, he said just that we need to consider that scripture sometimes doesn't teach what we think it teaches. Hmm. Right. And he's referring to people who object to the word of God, that it's inaccurate. It's unhelpful because of it seems to endorse slavery. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, you're, you're reading something that it doesn't say. So you have to consider that. And then he said, we need to consider the possibility that you are misunderstanding the Bible, what it's saying because of your own cultural blinders, which is exactly what you just said. You know, and the third thing is, he said, you may be getting offended by a scripture, scriptural text because of an unexamined assumption of the superiority of your cultural moment, right? That we we think we are so enlightened now, and we know something that the the the, the writers of scripture didn't know back then. I, that last one really struck me because you know I studied Enlightenment, European intellectual history, and when. Kant, Immanuel Kant, who was who was part of the beginning of the Enlightenment, a huge thinker in the Enlightenment. Now, this is after Newton. This is after the Co- Copernican Revolution. Science has really found its own feet, if you will. You know, Newton has discovered gravity. He's discovered the mo- motion of the planets. He, he's the one that invents calculus. And all the scientists, they are, you know, the geeks are often popular. You know, it's the cool thing. And so... Um, Kant just can't believe in miracles. Now that we understand science, we understand all those miracles really were probably just, we, you know, we shouldn't believe in black magic is what he's saying anymore. We, we just got to believe in science. So he writes a book, he writes an essay, a treatise about religion called The Critique of Pure Religion, I think. I can't remember for sure. And then he says, we finally can make religion acceptable to our culture and that all religion is reason. It's just thinking. Well, 100 years later, 150 years later, at the beginning of the Romantic period, what's happened is thinking has not, I mean, we are not just brains, right? And, you know, if, right. if somebody said to you, the only thing that matters in your life is thinking, your, my, your wife would not be happy. I promise you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and so it didn't satisfy people. So Schleiermacher, he's a theologian, he comes along and says, 
we have now made religion acceptable to the masses. And he says, because it's all about feeling. And it's just the most amazing thing. These are two very brilliant men, but these are two men speaking entirely out of their cultural moment. And they think my cultural moment right now is the most important moment in time. And one person says it's all about thinking. And the next person says it's all about feeling, you know, and then of course that doesn't satisfy. So there's, you know, new philosophical schools that come along like existentialism that says we have to live between the two. We have to live in that tension, but everybody says, my answer to human problems are the answer. And they're all trying to improve God, where God never says it's all about thinking. He also says, never says it's all about feeling. God says it's about something else. We're trying to improve upon the perfect. Right. And, it, and it's so happening now, right, with this idea of trying to come to a greater understanding, you know, reinterpreting things once again to make them fit, fit the cultural moment. Sam, what is it you said in the beginning? about usually our doubts or misunderstandings about who God really is, it usually starts with what? You said something in the beginning. Do you remember that? I'm sure it was profound, but I don't remember. <laughs> um, is it that it starts with a cultural moment? Or did I say it starts with just understanding part of scripture, but not the whole of scripture? I'm not really sure. Wasn't that? Okay. But, but, but it stirred this idea that I think usually trying to improve God as we started this podcast with this idea that that's what the world tries to do and it's counterfeit answers and solutions is I think it, this usually starts with something also like it's not supposed to work like this, that we say as a believer, as a follower of God, or he wouldn't do that. Right. You know, it starts with those kind of things where we don't understand why things are going the way they are. And we're thinking that that can't be God. We must misunderstand God. Something's wrong here. And, and as I was thinking about that in conversations I've had and, and the own doubts that I've had come up in my own life, that makes me wonder about what is God really like as opposed to what he says in scripture. What scripture tells us about him is things like this. Would God really thwart or interfere with my plans? I, I don't have much of a problem blaming that on Satan. But would God do that? Well, he's pretty clear in scripture that he will stand in front of people to say, I've got something bigger going on right now, something more important. So I will stop you. And, and it makes us question who God is and what has he said about himself and how can that be true about him? Or, you know, would God allow hardship or suffering in one person's life for the good of others? You know, would he actually disrupt my life but because he's doing something in a, in, a, in a family, in a group, in a culture, in a community. And it makes me wonder, I don't think I understand this God, so I need to recreate him and bring better clarity. Or um, God would not allow me or want me to suffer financially or relationally or maritally. Or happiness-wise. Right, happiness-wise. Why Would he do that? I don't think so. And there, there we start the process of starting to redefine God because our, our experience doesn't seem correct or he can't be like that. I, this is where I see people wrestle. This is some of the, some of the wrestling I feel sometimes. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in God's, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so you can understand my word. He's going to bring these words back to you, but you can understand it. We can't understand God's word without his Holy Spirit. But as we begin to understand the ways of God, 
you know, one of my quotes, I think one of both of our favorite quotes is an Oswald Chambers quotes. It says, suffering burns up a lot of shallowness in a person. Mm. Well, I don't like the idea of being suffering, but I don't like the idea of suff- of being shallow either. Right. And I know my own attempts not to be shallow never work because they're shallow attempts not to be shallow, you know? <laughs> and, and yet I do know the times I've grown most are in suffering. So is yeah. this a loving God that's purifying me? Well, it is. I, it's not the way I would do it. I would want him to be able to, you know, snap his fingers and he puts the idea in my head and all of a sudden I'm deeper. Right. But it doesn't work that way. So, so yes, on the surface, these ideas seem like a harsh God, but any of us who are honest with our lives, if we can be honest in the moment, we realize actually we've usually grown most in some of the difficult times. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. Mm. You know, and 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 so mm. in our attempt to make God kind, we actually rob him of his kindness. Right. I, yeah, I remember that's such a good quote. I remember hearing somebody say, this is a long time ago, and I'm sure you've heard it and others have heard it, but it was this idea that the Ten Commandments were not certain things that God was saying, yeah, I don't want you to experience, I don't want you to have this at all. It was rather saying, these things will harm and destroy your life and the life of others and our relationship. This is why I'm saying to you, don't do these things. And it was just this whole different way to look at this is God's not being restrictive. He's being actually proactive in in trying to bring us into the life he has for us. It was just such a different way to look at this. And, and, you know, I heard someone say a while back, um, if we do not take truth seriously, we will not take God seriously. And I was very struck by that. They go, as you've been saying, very much hand in hand. As soon as we don't take truth seriously, we think we can pick and choose. We need to change it. We need to update God. Then we're not taking him seriously anymore. And I think we would admit that's not a good place to be with God. And yet I think we do that. You know, in the heresies that I've read, you know, over the years, I think the thing, the single thing that stands out in the heresies is it's somebody takes one truth of God and sort of makes it the supreme truth and they reduce the other ones. So, you know, there's this idea that God is so loving, they just reject the whole idea of hell, even though Jesus, the most loving, spoke more about hell than anybody else in all the scripture. You know, they just want to get rid of that. Heresies are when we take one truth of God and abandon the rest. I I just did a sermon on Acts 20 this last week. And one of the phrases that struck me was Paul is talking to some elders, his last time he'll ever see them. And one of the things he says is, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Now it's, it's, you know, I understand why he doesn't shrink. There's things that you and I don't want to say. I don't want to say that there's a hell. I mean, I don't want to seem like one of those nasty, exclusive, you know, nose in the ear guys. I don't want to talk about hell, but scripture talks about it. And Paul says, I did not shrink about talking about the whole council. Now, part of the whole council is God is Jesus didn't want us to go to hell. I mean, Jesus came, scripture says, and took hell for us. So in a certain sense, understanding hell to me gives a sense of his great love for me. He would love me that much. And if I rob Jesus of having taken that for me, I'm actually making Jesus harder, not softer, less loving. 
Right. Yeah. You know, I've told you this, Sam, that someone in our church taught a while back on the fear of God. And he said, you know, you look at the different attributes of God. What, what makes God who he is? He said, you know, there are certain things we have a hard time with. The fear of God is one of those things. But he said, it's like a 12 string or a six string guitar. You know, you can't choose to not play one of the strings all the time because he said, you'll never hear the full, the beauty of that instrument. You'll not hear the full music. And he said, you know, nor are we to get rid of one of the strings because then the whole guitar, in fact, you were telling me this, that if you, if you eliminated one of the strings, you know, you would actually, the whole guitar would eventually go off because the tension is not correct anymore. And I thought there are parts of God's character that is revealed in scripture. Sometimes we'd rather not pluck that string. We not want to play that. And yet one string makes sense of the other. You know, just like you said, it's, it's, it doesn't, the grace and the mercy of God does not make sense if we don't understand our sinfulness and the consequences of it. And we just, you know, we just can't pick and choose. We, we will, you know, you, you eliminate one thing, you eventually will destroy everything. Right. And, you know, the, the, I love our title, Improving God, because that is what everybody's trying to do, aren't they? They're, as yeah. you said, they're trying to be the image consultant for God. God, I know you have a bad image, but I think I can help you. Um, and yet, if we look at what God did in the past, we can see it. So Jonah hates those Gentile dogs, right? He hates the Ninevites because they're not God's people. And he runs away because he doesn't want to do it. And then when he preaches, they all repent and God decides not to destroy them. And this infuriates Jonah. He wants God to burn him to an ash. And so the, the last chapter of Jonah is Jonah just moaning and groaning and grinding his teeth and being mad. And God saying to Jonah, you care about that plant. Can't I care about, care about 100,000 people, not to mention you know, the animals. I mean, so God is revealing his heart of love to Jonah. And we all look at that and say, absolutely. Jonah needed an enlightenment, didn't he? Well, so, so Jonah would never have been aware of his need to know God's love that way. He, he, he was blind to it. And if, and if people, if God had back then said, well, his culture doesn't understand this. I can't reveal it to him. That would have robbed Jonah of the opportunity of seeing God's love. I think in our culture, we're afraid to say the things that are hard news, but I think God would say to us, but you're robbing them of what they really need. What they think they need and what they really need are two very, very different things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great example, Sam. And it, and it is amazing that all those things, things can be true of God at one time, right? He can be exclusive for those who receive Christ, right? Who, who believe in his death for them and a sacrifice and their need for him. He can be exclusive saying only those will inherit the kingdom of God and eternal life. But he is so inclusive at the same time saying, but all I want everyone, no one to perish and all to come. And those tensions that we have a hard time with, you know, I, I was reading as, as we were thinking about this, this subject and in Ezekiel, there was this point where they were really, it was recorded where they were really challenging God. You know, would you really do this? I mean, come on, really? And, and what about if the father did this? But what if the father was good, but the son did this? What would you, you know? Right. And, and at one point, God says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here, you Israelites, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? 
it's, it was such a good, let me get in your face for a minute and say, it's not me, it's you. You need to rethink the way you think, you know? And I, it just feels like that's gotta be God's word to our culture today is I'm not unjust. You are actually the ones that are unjust. You're not, so don't take me apart and improve on me because you lose me in the midst of it. And I think we all, we all do that to some degree. We do. And, you know, your, your, your comment about God not being, God is exclusive, but he's not exclusive towards me in a, in the sense that he says, Sam, you can accept me. You can choose to accept me, but I can't be proud if I accept him, you know, cause it's, right. it's not so, so even I can't be exclusive in my heart, the way Jonah was, Jonah sort of saying, I got, I'm the son of Abraham. I'm, you know, super duper, but we can't be that because yeah. the only way we were accepted is by admitting we are unworthy. You know, it's sort of like the one key entry into the, into uh, the life of God is humility to say, I'm completely unworthy. And God says, absolutely. You may enter in now. I, I think the hard thing for us is our culture right now says, um, our, our culture wants to emphasize freedom, right? Freedom to do anything. It's like, it's like the first commandment is my right to choose whatever I want. I can choose who I have sex with. I can choose if I'm married or not. I can choose even what gender I prefer. I can choose what gender I have sex with. And it's very hard. Our modern culture says, how could God prohibit this mm. love? And, you know, I don't have those temptations. I have other temptations that God has prohibited. So, you know, I don't have that one. And yet God, God says he knows what's best. And this is the test for, for believers is to say, can I lay aside what my culture says is best? Can I lay it aside knowing that this God who would die for me says, no, I really do have something better. I know that looks appealing. I know that looks like the only answer to you because your culture has blinded you. But can we accept a God loves us even more than we love ourselves? Yeah. And knows us yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we really, we do have an identity confusion issue today, but it's not personal identity. It's God's identity. That's where we have a confusion issue, God's identity, That's who a he good really is, you know, and, and, and so just, just to make this very personal with all of us that are listening is, you know, we started with this whole topic that we've been talking about are counterfeit answers. And how often we buy into these counterfeit answers, we think they're correct, and we, we wholeheartedly accept them because the culture does, or they sneak in, you know. And again, it's, it's those hidden beliefs of the heart that you talk about, that if, if we're not aware of it, we, we live out of that. And I think, so, so, you know, as I was bringing up before, when I talk to people, say, for instance, a lot about their calling, a lot of them either become, because they're, they're thinking, would God really thwart my plans? I'm trying to follow him. I put these things in place that I think God told me to do or wants me to do, and it's not happening. And they either become, and, and when I say they, I say they do this. I can do the same thing. Yeah. Either they become very manipulative, controlling, striving. I will make this happen, even if God is, you know, not being attentive to me at this point, because he did tell me to do it, or they just become paralyzed, you know, taken out of, well, if, if this is the way God is, I don't care anymore. And just having to go back and say, so what is it you believe about who God is, what he does and why he does it? 
Um, I, I just think we have to be really aware of what is it that we hold in our heart about who God is. Did we get it from scripture? Or did we get it from somewhere else? I really like that, Gary. I, you know, the sort of the viewpoint is if I do everything right, God will bless me is the classic viewpoint of moralism. And we all hate the idea of moralism. I mean, even moralists hate moralism, right? I mean, no one accepts it, but I, I've recently just read a few stories. One is God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. Terrific. God leads them fire and, you know, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. So God himself is leading them. Where does he lead them? He leads them to the desert where there's no food or water. And you, know, you could say, well, wait a minute, I'm following you. And then I read Jesus. He was in Matthew three or four. He gets baptized by the Holy Spirit. The next chapter starts and the spirit led him into the wilderness. You know, I'm just laughing. This is just another example. I read it the same day as I read, you know, the one about Jesus leading or the fire leading him into the wilderness. Then I read um, this week, I read Jesus tells the disciples to get into a boat. They get into a boat. He falls asleep and there's a storm. You know, so there are biblical cases for following God and things not being the way they want. You know, my story where I feel like God called me and Carla to get a retreat house and we had a retreat house. We had a year worth of retreats and the neighbors asked us to stop. And Carla and I are still in the middle. We're still in the storm or the drought. I don't know which one it is. And, uh, and yet I do believe God is in it. You know, I don't see any way out. I don't see any good he can do in this. Um, Tim Keller once talked about anxiety and he described anxiety this way. He said, anxiety is knowing what needs to happen and believing God's going to get it wrong. You know? So, <laughs> you know, and that's sort of what we are in all of our improving God answers is we know what needs to happen. And we're pretty sure God's a little naive in this culture, cultural right. sense. You know, we think God's yeah. going to get it wrong. Boy, that's such a good example and a current one you know, that you just gave of the retreat house idea that you move forward on, you have it right. And the idea is, is, is God just passive? Is he uninvolved? Does he change his mind? You know, is he powerless? There's those little things that can come up in the midst of that. You know, I was listening to a, um, a podcast recently with John Stone Street. And, and I loved one of the things he said as they, as they try to analyze the culture What's going on and why? And how do we look at that as believers scripturally? And one of the things he said, he said something like this, our worldview always answers two questions. And he, and he said, anybody, everyone has a worldview. Everyone does, because you have to try to interpret the world and how it works and your place in it. And how do you operate in it? But he said, our worldview basically answers two questions. One is, what is the highest good? And the other is, what's the real problem to be fixed? And whose responsibility is it to fix it? And he said, you know, so in our culture today, what's the highest good? It's my personal happiness, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and personal freedom, pleasure freedom. And, you know, what's the real problem? Well, it's the laws or it's the other person or it's a cultural misunderstanding of what people really who people really are. And whose responsibility is to fix it? Well, it could be the government, it could be individuals, it could be groups. Where scripture really addresses this, right? The highest good is that we would know God and worship him. Right. And, and what's the real problem is the, the sinfulness of man, you know, which we continue to struggle for. And whose responsibility is to fix it? It's Christ. It's what the gospel is all about. 
And I just thought this, you know, that is absolutely true. So when we look at these counterfeit answers coming at us, which is the world's talk, it's their conversation with us, you can start to see, you know, you look at this and go, I understand your worldview because I can tell what you believe the highest good is. That's not what scripture says. And I can tell what you think the problem is. It's we're destroying the environment. It's, you know, people are too legalistic, whatever it is, you know, so it's, it's just a fascinating lens to look at the culture with. In fact, he does go on to say, he said, you know, worldviews are like prescription glasses. The right one helps you see reality clearly. The wrong one blurs reality. And I thought that's, that's really true. <laughs> that's great. I'm struck by your comment, and we should do a whole topic about this sometime, about happiness is mm. the highest good is happiness. I, I think Stone Street, and you are right about that. That is, I mean, I was saying, you know, like the number one commandment nowadays would be, you shall not take away my choice, or, you know, thou shalt have freedom of choice. <laughs> yes. But that's really dependent on, because we think the highest good is the ability to do anything I need to get to become happy. And therefore you can't put a law as an obstacle. You can't put a wall as an obstacle. You can't put anything in my way of being happy. And if this spouse doesn't work, I should be able to take another spouse. If this gender doesn't work, I should be able to take another gender. I mean, there is a way that happiness is it. C.S. Lewis has this great quote, and I don't know exactly where it is, but he's talking about people seeking happiness. And he says, if you seek for this world, you will get nothing. If you seek heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Mm. You know, his idea being, if we seek for happiness, we're really not going to get happiness. Somehow we're going to miss that target because human beings are made for something more than happiness. We're made to serve God, to worship God. But when we do worship God, we become happy because that's who we were made to be. We'll never be happy if, if we're, you know, a giraffe trying to be an elephant. You know, it just isn't going to work. We only can be happy the way God made us to be. And so if we seek God's will, God's ways, then we'll both worship God by seeking his ways and we'll have contentment, satisfaction, joy, friendship. Okay. Hey, Gary, thank you so much for this today. It was really fun. Again, it's always fun doing this with you. And I look forward to seeing you doing again next week. Thanks for listening. Please join us by following this podcast or liking it and visit our websites, thenobleheart.com and beliefsoftheheart.com for more resources in living the eternal life with God today. You'll find articles, videos, and online classes. See you next week.